I did ask for it, so there you go. Welcome to Union Chapel again this morning. So glad you're here. We're on this series called God in Your Bod. Now, here's the whole idea. The whole idea is to try to discern, uncover, discover God's original design, creative design, and intent, purpose for the human body, our relationships in our body. There are so many expressions, lifestyles, activities going on in our world today that especially in the church, we need to have a foundation. We, have, we need to have definitions of God's original design and intent for our relationships and our bodies so that we have a base from which we can influence the world around us. And so our, our idea here is to develop a theology, an understanding of God's mind regarding our body and our relationships. I've chosen uh, today for our text from the book of beginnings, Genesis and chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 21 to 25. So if you have your Bibles, you can open those or turn them on. And if not, we'll project the words on the screen. So Genesis 2, 21 to 25, I'll invite you to stand as you're able to hear God's word. This is Moses now who wrote the book of Genesis. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping... He took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. 
Now may God instruct and inspire us through his word today. Thank you. You may be seated. Now see if you agree with this statement. An individual or a group of people should never be defined by what we are opposed to. You agree with that? Never identified by what we resist or what we don't agree with. I would just want to challenge any of us who spend more of our time complaining about what we don't like than we do affirming what we approve and value. Because there's much to celebrate. There's much goodness. There's much glory in God's original intent and design in all these categories of life. And, and so the better question isn't what are we opposed to. The better question is what are we enthusiastically for? What, what are we excited about? What do we celebrate? And I want to submit to you that God's original design, plan, and purpose for the human body and our relationships is worth celebrating. It is a wonderful design, and if we understand it, perhaps we can adhere to it and, and teach it in a compelling way to others. Now, we live in a culture of brokenness. All of us understand that. There's divorce, digital porn, homosexual practice, adultery, fornication, gender reassignment, the right to die, abortion. All of these issues are part of a larger theme which can be considered if we understand God's original design and purpose for the body, a theology, if you will, of the body. So we ask the question, we're attempting to answer this question in this series, what is God's creative design and purpose for the human body? Now, I want to put this statement on the screen just to make the point as well as I can. All of the current questions in our culture are not about sex. They are about the human body and God's original design and purpose. And I want to just offer this challenge, plant this seed, especially in the minds of the people who are most young in the room today. I think it's going to require your generation to sort this stuff out. I will make the confession that my generation is the one who's messed up the theology around the body. It is our patterns, our behaviors, our attitudes which have thrown us off course. And so it's going to take a very thoughtful, a very careful, a very prayerful work to reclaim Almighty God's best design and purpose for the human body, and it's going to take time, and it's going to require your generation or the next generation to sort it out. We can't tweet our way out of this. We're, we're, we've gotten to a bad spot, I think, and it's going to take a while to climb out. So sex and marriage, as I argued last week in the beginning message in this series, has become a commodity in our culture. We treat we treat sex and marriage as if it's just something that we pick off the shelf. We imagine it as something uh, that we use for, uh, for fulfillment or companionship or sexual fulfillment or happiness or economic efficiencies, and, and we, treat, we treat marriage just like a commodity. If the wife that I have right now doesn't suit me, doesn't make me happy, I'll discard her and maybe I'll pick up a man this time. Or if that doesn't make me fulfilled, then I'll try something else. And, we, and we, we just treat it like it's a commodity. I want to put this statement on the screen just to remind you that God's original intent and design about marriage is about something other than commodity. The world sees marriage as commodity. God sees marriage as a covenant. Completely different animal. And in covenant relationship, this is for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till death do us part. 
And so we know that covenant is a call of God to loyalty and devotion uh, to a partner for life. And that's a strong contrast to the commodity culture that we have become. Now, there's another thing about the human body that I just want to mention, and I've, I tried to lay this out last week, and that is that our bodies are more than just flesh and bone, but that our, our bodies in God's economy, God's creative design, are actually sacred. Pope John Paul II argued that our bodies could be considered a means of grace. In other words, our bodies become a conduit or a vessel through which God's blessing, God's touch, God's favor can flow, not only to us, but through us. I argued last week that the human body can be considered sacred because we actually see the truth of God with our physical eyes. We hear with our physical ears. We confess our faith with our physical lips. When we engage in the sacramental activities of baptism and Holy Communion, we engage our bodies. We, we immerse a human body under the water. It's a sacred act. It's a means by which God Almighty touches our humanity through our bodies. The most important thing we will do this morning is receive Holy Communion on this World Communion Weekend where hundreds of millions of Christians all over the world will be partaking of the Lord's Supper and we will literally ingest the symbolic body and blood of Jesus into our bodies. And so our bodies are a means of grace. God sees our relationships as covenant and God views our bodies as sacrament, as sacred an outward sign of an inward and spiritual grace. And so with these two kinds of definitions, we begin to understand better what God's original design and intent is for the human body and our relationships. Now with that as a foundation, let me just unpack some of our text this morning from Genesis 2 and learn more about God's idea, his original purpose for our bodies. Number one, write this down, it's on your outline. We are called to freedom. We're called to freedom. Now, now by that, we're going to have to examine our nakedness. In Genesis 2.25, here's what the text says. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. They were naked and felt no shame. Now, it's very important for us to remember our pre-fallen state. Adam and Eve were created in this perfect environment of Eden, this paradise, and before sin entered the world, we have the very best picture of God's original intent and design. This is, this is how Jesus referred us last week from Matthew 19. You remember the Pharisees tried to trip him up with a question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? And they knew that Moses had issued a decree of divorce uh, that he had done so as a compromise to God's best plan because of the pressures of the culture and circumstances of his day. And so they knew that they had that little example, that, uh, that, that piece of history that they could use against Jesus and his, and his intention. So Jesus said, look, I understand that Moses issued this decree of divorce, that people could find this loophole back in the day. But the reason that Moses did this and compromised the standard was because of the hardness of the heart of the people. And so people had become rebellious toward God and callous towards God's best plan and ideal. And so Moses allowed this because of those circumstances. Then Jesus adds this phrase, and it's an important phrase. He said, but 
from the beginning, this was not so. From the beginning, it was not so. And so Jesus argued and pushed back and said, look, I understand that circumstances and culture and there's mores and trends that come from generation to generation and people engage in all kinds of behaviors, but from the beginning, it was not so. And so Jesus hastens us back to the beginning, the pre-fallen state, and that's where we find ourselves. Today in our culture, we may get this kind of, this kind of questioning. Jesus, is it lawful for a man to marry another man? Or is it lawful for a man to become a woman? And so Jesus would, I suspect, have the same response to our generation as he did to just 2,000 years ago. You know, 2,000 years ago is just a relatively brief time in history. We think that we're, we're, we're all evolved and sophisticated. We're like nobody else has ever lived. For thousands of years in human history, we've seen people historically... Uh, uh, define these relationships in certain ways. And now for the last 15 minutes of history, we think that we're smarter than everybody who's ever lived and we can change the definitions. I think it's just presumptuous. And so, and so this, is, this is what Jesus does. He hearkens us back to the pre-fall, pre-sin condition of humanity in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And what we find is Adam and Eve were in the garden, they were naked and they felt no shame. Now, this is hard for us to get our minds around because, because we associate Adam with guilt and sin. We say the first Adam, well, he's the guy who messed up. And, and, and guilt and fear entered the world. But to this day, we still associate shame with nakedness. For example, if, uh, if for some reason you fell asleep, became unconscious, and when you woke up, you woke up about an hour from now, and you were out in the middle of our parking lot completely naked as people were leaving the church. What emotion do you feel there? Oh, no. <laughs> this is so embarrassing. And, you know, you would run for cover and, and all that. It's because we associate nakedness with shame. Um, there's a program that's produced by the Discovery Channel. It's been on for a couple of years now. It's called Naked and Afraid. And maybe you've seen this. This is where they put two buck-naked total strangers, a man and a woman, in some godforsaken part of the world and ask them to stay alive for three weeks. It's, it's gruesome. A anyway, they could just as easily name the program Naked and Ashamed as it, as it is Naked and Afraid because guilt, fear, and shame entered the world when sin entered the world. Before sin entered the world, this is, the, this is the, the kind of freedom that God wants us to live in. Adam and Eve were naked, and they were unashamed. They felt no shame. pastor went to visit a, the home of a parishioner, and he knocked on the door, and he heard someone rustling around inside, but they didn't come to the door. And so he finally gave up, and he took his card, and he wrote Revelation 3.20 on the card, left it in the door. And Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in. Well, the following Sunday, the woman whose home he'd visited handed him a little note as she was leaving the church. It simply said, Genesis 3.10. And after everyone had left, he looked in his Bible and read Genesis 3.10, which says, I heard you when I was in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for laughing. That's an old one, but it still works, so you can just use it. So you, you may recall that Adam and God walked in the garden pre-fall, pre-sin. 
And they, they communed with one another in the cool of the day. I mean, you just, you just feel the intimacy of this. But now that sin has entered the world, God comes into the garden one night and Adam's nowhere to be found. And so God asks these questions. He says, where are you? Where are you? Implying there's been a break in communion, relationship. And here was Adam's response. I was afraid. Heard you when I was in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And then the next question, who told you you were naked? And his response was, the woman you gave me, she caused me to sin. And then there's a third question in these early chapters of Genesis right after the fall. And it's the question now to the woman. And God says to her, what is this you've done? What have you done? And she says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And so you see in these questions the implication that now the communion has been broken between God and Adam and now between Adam and Eve. And so there's now dysfunction and disjointed relationship. People are separated in their relationship from God and from one another. But the higher standard, God's original design and purpose was for communion and intimacy and closeness, right? And freedom, no shame, no guilt, no fear. But now shame, guilt, and fear has entered the world. And yet God still calls us to freedom. And so that's, that's our goal. That's, 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 that's our intention, that we want to be free as people of guilt, shame, and fear. Now listen, there's only one way that you or me or anyone else can be free of guilt, shame, and fear in this life, and that is through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the only way. Jesus alone has the power to set us free from the weight of sin, which manifests itself in fear and guilt and shame and all of the attendant dysfunction and separation and isolation. And so we trust in a hopeful way that he whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Amen? And so we look to Jesus to set us free from these things. Now, here's the second thing that we learn from our text. Not only are we called to freedom, but we are called to marriage and childbirth. Marriage and childbirth. Now, this is where we might echo or reflect the Trinity. The Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit now is reflected in a family, a human family made in the image and likeness of God, where there's a father, a mother, and a child. And, and so we see this call to marriage and childbearing. Now, this, this may sound in our contemporary culture very controversial, it's very controversial because why would we impose people being married, that expectation on them? Why would we impose any expectation that they bear children? I mean, this is, this is none of our business. And why would, why would you do such an extreme thing? Well, I'm just describing to you original design and purpose. Original design and purpose. In our text today in Genesis 2 and also last week from Matthew 19, Jesus quoted Moses. And, they, and, and so they said, it is for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Yeah. So, so the family, that is the father, mother, and child, reflects the Trinity. And from the very beginning, from the very beginning, God designed human beings to be fruitful and multiply. And of course, having said that, I need to just add quickly that there are those who have been called to singleness and celibacy as well. And this is 
this is a perfectly godly thing to be, single and celibate. It's a gift of God. It's perfectly wonderful and admirable. And I'm going to say more about that in this series because it's applicable to so many people in our culture who choose to be or are called to be single celibate. Yeah. But there are churches now in America who are so, who are so uh, confused about God's original design and purpose for relationships and, and our body that they no longer celebrate Mother's Day and Father's Day. And the reason these churches don't celebrate Mother's Day and Father's Day is because they say, we wouldn't want to run the risk of offending someone who's not actually a father or a mother. Or impose on them some expectation that they get married and they make a baby. And so they just simply refuse to celebrate Mother's Day and Father's Day. And let me just say that it's complete nonsense to ignore the celebration of Mother's Day and Father's Day. Let me let you in on something. Here's a scoop. Here's a newsflash. Ready? Here it comes. Everyone in this room has a mother and a father. Any questions? Are you okay? Are you, is that confusing to anyone? Everyone has a father and a mother. And so we've all participated in this one way or the other. <laughs> we, all, we all have parents. Yet the contemporary world has set the genders at war with one another. Have you noticed? It is an endless and baseless and destructive process trying to divide the genders. Here's what God's original design and purpose includes, that men and women are better together. Men and women are better together. He calls us into covenant relationship and to the reproduction of other people. Remember, the trajectory of the fall, when sin entered the world, the consequences of that sin led toward a disintegration of relationship with God and with one another. And, 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 and it actually uh, emphasizes solitude and autonomy. You know, that I have my rights and, and they are to be defended at all costs. And, and they're not to be confused with someone else's rights. And so here we are in a world that, that exonerates uh, isolation and autonomy and a solitude, a separation of these things. But the, so the trajectory of the fall divides people and only produces more guilt and shame and fear. All of the trends and the voices and the expressed anxieties in our culture today, and we've heard a lot of this the last couple of weeks, separating men and women in our contemporary world is all driven by, all motivated by fear and guilt and shame. And all it produces is more fear and more guilt and more shame. Let me, let me put this on the screen because I want you to hear it clearly. Whatever forces us inward toward autonomy and solitude and separation from one another. Whatever, whatever forces us away from each other always produces more guilt, fear, and shame. But whatever forces us toward God and toward one another, especially as men and women, produces freedom and liberty and fulfillment. It's counterintuitive to the world and a culture that we're living in right now what the culture teaches is the more you stand up for your rights and the more you defend your position as a man or a woman, 
the, the more free and liberated you're going to be. Just the opposite is true. Because it's not part of God's original design. God's original design said, you want fulfillment and freedom, y'all need to get along. You're better together. I've called you together. This is my plan. This is my purpose. You want to be free? You want to be liberated? You want to be fulfilled? You want to enjoy your life? You want to be blessed? You want to be completely free to be yourself? Then follow the original pattern. Otherwise, you're just producing more fear, fear, guilt, and shame. All of the screeching and the name-calling and the shouting the last two weeks in this country, you say, well, this has enhanced, you know, the role of women, the protection of women, just the opposite. All it has done is produce more shame, more guilt, more fear, more separation, not less. I don't know what you put in the offering today, but you just got your money's worth right there. Now, here's what, here's what Genesis 4.1 says. Watch this. Here, again, original design. Genesis 4.1, Adam made love to his wife Eve. She became pregnant, gave birth to Cain. All right, there it is. Here's the triune God revealed through childbirth. See, we have become co-creators with God in the birthing of children. This is an amazing, mysterious, miraculous co-creation that God actually entrusts us, empowers us, gives us authority as human beings, men and women, to actually procreate and produce another human being who's made in the image and likeness of God and contained therein is, a, is an eternal soul. This is a remarkable thing. And nothing could be more reflective of the Godhead than what it takes to actually raise a new baby. I mean, nothing... Nothing is an expression of sacrificial love of greater extent in all of the human experience than caring for a newborn. I mean, that's an all-in proposition, all hands on deck. I mean, it takes everything. You know, God had to choose who would become parents. In God's creative, original design, he had to think this through. Should I give, should I give young children to older people who are wise or younger people who are unwise? He may have said stupid. Because everybody's been young and stupid. <laughs> so I, I can give them to the old and the wise or the young and the stupid. And God actually thought about that, had to. And he came to this conclusion, I'm going to give it to the young and the stupid. Because it's going to take a lot of energy to raise those kids. It's going to take everything. All this self-sacrifice, all this self-donation, 24-7. And they can get wisdom as they go. But they're going to need all the energy they've got to raise these babies. So that's what, that's what God that's what God chose. So the world, the culture around us only knows autonomy and solitude, separation. And so what the culture says to us is that they scorn reproductive activity of the human body rather than honoring the reproductive miraculous mystery of reproduction that, that where we get to co-create with God in a, this amazing way, the culture around us says, that's a terrible thing. That's a horrible thing. It, it manifests itself in same-sex relationships. By definition, cannot reproduce. Same-sex relationships, by definition, cannot reproduce. That's not a, that's not a judgment for people who have same-sex attraction. That's just a biological fact. It's a reality. And, you, and we have to carefully, in the church, carefully discern what that means as a distinction from God's original design and plan, which was marriage and childbirth. Be fruitful and multiply. This is God's original design. And, and, and so same-sex 
is therefore a rejection of God's original design. Reproductive rights, abortion, falls into the same category. It is not, it is not driven by freedom. Listen to me. It is driven by guilt and shame and fear, sometimes convenience, and worst of all, by gender preference. And thousands, and yea, over the years, tens of millions of babies, preborn babies in this country have been aborted in the name of freedom and choice. And it's a horrible deception because it has nothing to do with freedom. Folks get, fo folks get amazed at what's happening to the culture now uh, with casual sex. It's the same thing because sex now is a commodity not a part of covenant, you can hook up with anybody you want anytime you want. I mean, everybody's doing it. It's the way we do. We cohabitate. We do it. Everybody's doing it, so it must be okay, and so we do it. And sometimes we're having casual sex and hooking up because we met somebody online. Maybe it's the same gender. Maybe it's the opposite gender, and then people have sex. And a man and a woman hook up, and sometimes they don't even know the name of the other person, but they've had casual sex, and that's okay because that's, that's the moray of the culture. And now there are studies being written because, because people who are having casual sex without any commitment, without any covenant, are starting to complain that there's this shadow, psychological shadow, that now f accompanies this engagement of casual sex. And folks are curious about that. They're confused about this. Why, why am I thinking and feeling things about this person? I didn't even know their name. I had sex with them. And, but and now it's dogging me. It bothers me. It it's haunting me. There's this shadow, this ghost of this experience that I just can't shake off of me. The reason for that is because Jesus said that a man who enjoins himself with a woman in sexual activity becomes one flesh with her. And there is a spiritual dynamic at work. There's a God-given principle at work where a man leaves his father and mother, cleaves to his wife, the two become one flesh. There's a one flesh concept that occurs in sexual intercourse that has spiritual and psychological, emotional, soulish dimension to it. And so now it's confusing to people that they have casual sex and then they can't quite shake it off and move on to the next event without this shadow, without this ghost, without, the, without these emotions attached to it. <laughs> you, can't, you can't have it both ways. When you, when, you, when you run from original design and choose another course, it only produces sin and guilt and shame and bondage. It never produces freedom and liberty. Well, I'm free to do and be in anything. I can use my body in any way I choose. Okay. But if you deviate from God's design, there will be consequences to that. If you choose to embrace God's best design, that's where the blessing and the fulfillment flows. Now, you, you don't have to agree with me, but, but you understand my motive in all of this. My motive is that I want to lay a, a thoughtful, prayerful, biblical, historical foundation around these subjects so that we actually understand what God's original design is. So when the next question comes down the pike and there will be another question, well, how, about, how does this fit in? How does this behavior, how does this lifestyle fit in the original design? At least we'll have a base from which to speak. The great danger in the church today is that the church is just given into the new definitions. Oh, yeah, marriage is not about covenant anymore. It's just about fulfillment and happiness and, and contentment and, and economic efficiencies. 
And as soon as the church does that, it loses its authority to speak about the issue because they're no longer connected to God's original design. I am really encouraging myself. I, this is really helpful to me. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And so the pushback is, you know, from, from certain segments of our culture to this kind of talk would be, you know, with re- reproductive rights, for example, it would say it doesn't matter anyway. Because the attitude and the words and the, and the viciousness of the culture right now says, after all, it doesn't matter. Children are a nuisance. Children are a burden. You're better off without them. So we have an entire generation now hesitant to get married, hesitant to engage in covenant, hesitant to reproduce children. Oh, I'm not going to have any children. And that's, you know, you're, you can, you're free moral agents. You can do whatever you want. I'm just saying that God's original design and purpose and intent included reproduction, marriage in covenant, and the use of your body that is sacred, that is sacramental, that is holy, that is purposeful in reproducing other men and women made in the image and likeness of God who also embrace these values. This is where the blessing and provision of God will flow. Okay, let me give you this last point. We are not only called to freedom, to marriage and childbirth, but we are also called to self-donation, self-sacrifice, if you will. Now, I've been arguing that the family is a reflection of the Trinity, an echo of the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Father, Mother, Child. I've been arguing that. You may push back, and legitimately so push back on me and say, your family may have been a reflection of the Holy Trinity. (laughs) My family was not a reflection of God's best. My family experience was hell. My family experience couldn't have been worse if we were in hell. It was horrible. It was evil. It was so sick, so wrong. And you may tell your story and we might all agree. Oh my gosh, we're sorry to hear that. That's horrible. That's not right. That's not fair. That's not just. That's not good. That's evil. And that may be your story. And if it is your story, then I hope you'll hear your pastor. Listen to me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I've said that to many people privately over the years when I've heard their story. And just as sure as we're in this room, I'm talking to somebody right now. And let me just say to you, I'm sorry. Now, having said that, let me give you some good news. Let me give you some hope. Here's the good news. That almighty God, because of who he is and his affection toward you and his hopeful potential he's placed in you, always, no matter your circumstances, no matter your story, no matter what you've gone through, will always leave a trail of his presence so that you can find your way to him. And the reason I know that is because nothing is impossible with God. And through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he can make anything crooked straight. He can can take any stain and wash it away. He can take any wound, any, any, any force of pain that has come into your life, and he can bring healing and restoration and hope to you because of God's glorious gospel and the power in Jesus' name. 
And so he invites you to do this. Now, you've seen this. I've seen this many, many times. People have, there's no explanation for you. If the, after what you have been through, there's no reason for you to be upright. There's no reason for you to, you to even be alive, let alone functional. There's no good explanation for why you can even get your shoes on in the morning. But you're here, and you're not only here, but you're living you're living a meaningful, productive, providential life. And you have these original intent and design values intact in your life and in your worldview and in your practice. And there's no explanation for you except that Almighty God rescued you and pulled you out of that, that despair and that pain and that brokenness. And he has set your feet on a solid place and he has given you a name and given you a purpose and given you an identity and given you hope. And it's through the power of Jesus' name. And I just want to celebrate with you. And if you're a person in need of that kind of recovery, the good news is that Almighty God has such affection for you and such love for you and hope for you that he is willing to take you right where you are today. You don't have to climb any further. He'll take you by the hand right where you are and lead you to a better place. Glory to God. And that leads us to this moment where Jesus sat with his disciples and he he said to them, brethren, this is my body, which is given for you. And you understand that Jesus didn't have to work himself up to that moment. This is who he is. This is who he was. He is the, he is the God of self-donation. He is the God that so loved the world that he gave, gave himself. And so we find ourselves in this same moment. We celebrate World Communion Sunday weekend, this weekend, and we say, thanks be to God how grateful we are that Jesus has modeled for us, has gone before us and shown us the way for what it looks like to live a life in covenant and sacrament in relationship with God and with one another. And that we can follow his example because there's a thousand ways we can say to our covenant spouse, there's a thousand ways that we can say to one another in this life, this is my body given for you. I choose to give my life away in service to God, in pleasure to God, in honor to God, following Jesus' example. 